What is up, everybody? Welcome to Salt Company. Feels good to be back, doesn't it? Feels great. So if this is your first time or if you haven't met me yet, I'm Steven. I'm the salt director up here in Cedar Falls, and it's good to have everybody back from Christmas break. So I don't know about you, but I set goals when I go over Christmas break, but not like good goals. Like you'll get what I'm saying in a minute, but great goals. So here are like my three goals for Christmas break. One was to read this book by this Navy SEAL, and it was awesome, incredible stories. That was fun. My second goal was to take Iowa State to the national championship on NCAA 2010. But I gave up after I lost to like Alabama six times in a row because every time I would lose, I'd just quit and restart the campaign. And then I finally beat them and then I forgot to save it. So then I was just pissed and then I quit on that goal and then just gave up on video games for the rest of my life. So I literally said that. I went to bed at like two in the morning. I'm like, I will never play a video game by myself again. This sucks. You know what my problem was? Didn't take you and I. Had I done you and I, I would have burned through Alabama like it was a piece of cake, got through LSU like nothing. That's right, Ernie. You and I would have crushed LSU, the better purple and gold. Am I right, everybody? That is right, people, the better purple and gold. But here was my third goal for Christmas break, and it was really fun. So Natalie and I had a goal to watch all of Band of Brothers. So the like, series about World War II, to watch the entire 10-episode series of Band of Brothers. So pause. Like I said, my goals over Christmas break are awesome. They are so fun to actually try to do. So we get to Band of Brothers. We're working through it. And if you haven't seen it, it is a really, really powerful series about this company, easy company that's working their way through World War II. So it starts episode one with their training. Then you get D-Day. Then you get like uh, this battle called Market Garden. Then you have uh, the Battle of the Bulge and all of these just incredible battles that this company is participating in. So all throughout the series, you know, there's different main characters, but one of the main characters is Major Winters, and he's the commander of all this company, eventually gets promoted over the whole battalion, like the 101st Airborne, and he's leading this whole thing. So as you get to, towards the end of the series, you've seen all these crazy battles that they've survived and all these things they've accomplished. Towards the end, the troops, as they are getting into Germany and the war is starting to wind down, they start asking this question. So the second to last episode starts to bring up this question and the guys are all asking, was this worth it? Was all of this sacrifice, like being here for multiple years, being in Europe, was all of this worth it? Did any of this matter? Did we impact the war at all? Did we need to be here? Did our friends need to die? Did we need to sacrifice even like families and relationships back home? Was all of this worth it? And so this, towards the end, that's what they're wrestling through as they're going through Germany and, and seeing the war coming to the end. They're like, man, we've been gone so long. Was this worth it? Did it matter at the end of the day? So in the second to last episode, what happens as they're wrestling with this question of whether or not it mattered, they come across, they stumble across this Nazi concentration camp. They had no idea that these things exist. So they come up into the woods and they see this Nazi concentration camp. And at first they're like, what is going on? What is this place? And as they begin to figure out through translators and stuff what this, what this camp is, you can just see like the physical like realization that they're having that it was all worth it. As they're seeing like firsthand just the horrible atrocities that were happening unbeknownst to them throughout the war, they are just 
floored and overwhelmed by this reality that all of the loss, all of the sacrifice that they have made was totally worth it. And you have these uh, concentration camp members that are like hugging them and crying and, and they're just realizing just the horrific place that this was and the, the pure evil that this Nazi regime was. And they just, they're like, oh my word, the impact that we've had in winning this war, it's unimaginable. And so the way the series ends is just beyond powerful. They're interviewing the actual guys that were in Easy Company. So that now these guys are in their 80s and they're recounting all these stories now as the actual men who are in this company. And it gets to majors, Major Winters and you just are, you know, as Natalie and I are watching it over Christmas break, we're just overwhelmed by the reality that this was a man who sacrificed so much and his life mattered. Like this is a guy who has done something that, has impact beyond what we can understand. And as he's, as he's sharing now in his 80s, he tells about one of the guys who got back from the war, lived an incredible life post-war, and then died and before the series happened. And at his funeral, there's like 1,600 people that show up. And I'm just sitting there, you know, at the end of this series thinking like, man, these men had such an impact, especially just this one Nazi concentration camp, but in the entire world, and here's a guy who had 1,600 people at his funeral, and these are men who had lives that mattered. I'm sitting there, I'm like, I want to be the sort of person that has a legacy where 1,600 people show up to my funeral. Like, I want my life to matter so much that there are just scores of people that show up to my funeral. I don't want a funeral where nobody shows up. I want to know that my life had impact and mattered. And I think for so many of us in this room, that is what we desire. We wanna know that our life counted. Like at the end of the day, our life counted. Our life had an impact. Like the worst thing imaginable for so many of us is to know that our life didn't matter at all. Like that would be horrible. We wanna look, you know, like be like these guys in Easy Company where we know that our life had purpose and a meaning. So what we're gonna do this semester is we're gonna look at this, this letter that was sent to this first century church and it was a church that had incredible impact in their community. Just high impact. The influence that this one church had in their community was incredible. And what I really believe is that as we work through the content of this letter, if we can grasp what the author was saying, it will actually set us up to have a life that also has impact and also matters. So this letter that we're going to be working through this semester is called Ephesians so if you want to flip there, go ahead. It's towards the back of your Bible. Use your table of contents to get there. It's a tiny little letter. There's, it's like four or five pages. Pull it up on your phone, however you want to pull it up. So we're going to be looking at this letter for the whole semester, but really for the next nine weeks and asking this question of what about these people? What did they understand about Jesus and God that led them to be so impactful in their community? So here's what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, in the actual letter, we're just going to read the greeting, and then we're going to actually zoom way back and get some of the historical context for this letter, the church that it was sent to, the person who sent it, and their relationship. So if you're in Ephesians, I'm just going to read the first two verses, and then I'll set us up for where we're going tonight. So verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter was sent by this guy named Paul. He was a leader in the first century church. He would go around, start churches, and help churches that already exist uh, grow and be strengthened. And he's sending it to this church in this ancient town called Ephesus. So Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, and Paul helped start this church in Ephesus. So what we're going to do tonight, like I said, is we're going to zoom back, and we're actually going to see a story of how Paul met this church in Ephesus and how their relationship began. And throughout this story, we're going to see the impact that this church had in their community. And basically, it's all going to be coming down to this question. How can we, like the church in Ephesus, have impact? How can we have high impact? And what we're going to see in this story is that we will have high impact through a personal passion for Jesus. The way this church had impact in their community was through a personal passion passion for Jesus. So first thing, we're going to look at this story of how Paul and the the Ephesus believers met. Then we're going to see what fueled this impact, this personal passion they had for Jesus. And then the last thing we're going to do tonight is look at this letter that they get 30 years later after the letter of Ephesians. So I know I just had you turn to Ephesians, but actually I'm going to have you turn back a few pages to this book called Acts. So in Acts 19, Acts is a, a book in the Bible that chronicles how the church started. In Acts 19, we get the story of how Paul met these believers in Ephesus. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. Acts is a little bit bigger, so it's a little bit easier to find. All right, so Acts 19, it starts like this. Paul shows up to the town of Ephesus and in the be- like right at the beginning, he meets these 12 believers. So in this entire town of Ephesus, Paul is wandering around the streets. I don't know how it happens, but he runs into these 12 guys who are already believers. So he meets these 12 believers and then the next thing he does is in verse eight. So in verse eight, after meeting these 12 believers, Paul entered the synagogue, which is like, think of a Jewish church, And spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, that's just shorthand for Christianity, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Okay, so Paul meets these 12 disciples. Then he goes to these Jewish churches called synagogues and begins preaching, trying to convince these Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the savior of the world and that they should believe in him. But after, you know, several, several months, he begins to get pushback. So after that happens, he pulls away and starts meeting with these 12 guys in this small group of people in this lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he's meeting with these guys in the lecture of Tyrannus, verse 10. This is what happens as, he do it, as he's doing that. This went on, this meeting with these 12, on for two years. So that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Okay. So Paul gets pushed back from the Jews. He pulls these 12 aside, begins teaching them, begins training them. And over the course of two years, did you get this? All... Everybody in the vicinity, everyone in this region, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. That means that they heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins. 
So Paul and this small group of guys begin to really dig into what God had done through Jesus and begin sharing this message all throughout the region so that everyone, all the residents had heard the gospel over the course of two years. That is mind boggling. So what then happens, look down at verse 18. So as they're sharing the gospel, people began responding and putting their faith in Jesus. So verse 18, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, sharing the, the, you know, the evil and darkness and sin that was once, they were once enslaved to and now the freedom that they have in Christ. Verse 19, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So you got people coming saying, hey man, this is what I was once trapped in, but this is what Jesus has set me free to be now. You have others that are in like witchcraft and magic and they're coming and burning books and burning all these like witchcraft articles. So then here's where verse 19 continues. So they calculated the value of all these books and witchcraft articles and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. I didn't like pull out a calculator and figure out what that is like conversion, but I'll just tell you this, that's a lot of moolah. That's a bunch of money. 50,000 pieces of silver of witchcraft books. So verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So what you get is Paul showing up to this town in Ephesus. He meets these 12 guys that are believers. They form this small group and they begin devoting themselves to learning about Jesus and his word and what he had done on our behalf on the cross. And over the course of two years, they began sharing the gospel with everybody in the entire region to the point where they'd say everyone had heard the good news of Jesus. And then you get this crazy scene where you have tons of people who have given their life to Christ, so many so that you have 50,000 uh, you know, pieces of silver worth of books being burned. All that to say huge impact is happening in Ephesus over the course of these two years. So much so that you get down to verse 23 and this is what ends up happening. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificent come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. Okay, some, so some context for Ephesus. So in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis. So it's just this massive temple of Artemis. You can still go to, to modern day Ephesus and see some of the ruins of it. It's just this incredible temple. And so much of the life and rhythms of the culture in Ephesus revolved around this, this temple life, this worship of the goddess of Artemis. So a major industry inside Ephesus is this uh, idol making. They'd make these shrines and idols and sell them for people that wanted to worship Artemis. So here's what's happening. This guy named Demetrius who sells idols over the course of these two years as people are giving their life to Christ starts to look around saying, whoa, people are not buying as many idols as they used to buy. Why? Because so many people have given their life to Christ. 
Now, let me give you some context. It's estimated that the population of Ephesus at this point is 225,000 people to 250,000 people. That's a city like Des Moines, a huge city, if you're like from small town Iowa and not from large city places. Des Moines is huge, people. 250,000 people. Okay, even if that's not a big city compared to, you know, big cities, think about how many people would have to give their life before businesses would be afraid that they were going to go broke because so many people had changed the value system of how they operated to Christian values and no longer wanted to buy as many idols as they used to buy. In a city like Des Moines, how many people would have to give their life to Christ before businesses would be afraid they would go broke? Guys, at the very least, what this is saying is that the believers in Ephesus over the course of two years were having substantial impact, high impact. So much so that businesses were afraid they were gonna go bankrupt because people no longer thought idols were real gods. Like, I'm trying to think what that would be like for us in our day. It's like, you know, what if so many people in Cedar Falls gave their life to Christ and like we became content with you know, like non-broken cell phones that when the iPhone 12 like is released, Apple puts out a memo and they're like, we're literally afraid that people aren't gonna buy iPhone 12 because so many people in America have given their life to Christ and won't buy phones unless they break. Like, I don't know what it'd be, but you know, think about that. It's like, people are so content. They don't buy our new iPhones anymore. Like all the time, who knows? Like maybe that's not what happens, but think about that. So many people in a city of 250,000 people are giving their life to Christ that there's a business, an entire industry that feels like they're gonna go bankrupt. So here's what happens. You know, Demetrius is telling these, these guys, hey, we gotta do something. And so this is what they do, verse 28. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples didn't let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing, some another, because the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they had come together. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, verse 33. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. Motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But they recognized that he was Jew. They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you just get this insane scene happening. You have this entire city like flocking to this amphitheater and they're just shouting in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because there's businesses afraid they're going to go bankrupt because so many people had given their life to Christ over the course of two years. Guys, just pause for a second and think about what is happening. Paul shows up to Ephesus. He finds 12 believers, 12, in a city of 250,000 people, 12 believers. And he pulls them together and for two years teaches them daily. And, and this small group of people committed themselves so fully to the mission of God 
that over the course of the two years, they were able to say that everyone in the region had heard the gospel, that so many people were giving their life to Christ that they could count $50,000 worth of silver that was being destroyed as people were just repenting of their sin. And that there were businesses that had contrary values to that of Christianity that were afraid they might go bankrupt because so many people were following Jesus. 12 people, a small group of people who were able to see God do extraordinary things through them. They were able to see God have extraordinary impact through them. Guys, just, just sit back for a second and think about our context. As I'm looking at about 400 college students, I mean, think about what it would look like if everyone in this room was so fully committed to the mission of God that we could say of the 10,000 UNI students that come in here every single year, that there wouldn't be a single one who didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Like, could you imagine a scenario like that where 400 people were so fully devoted to God and his mission that if you signed up to be a UNI student, it was just like a given that you were gonna hear the gospel at some point in your four years here. What if, what if you, when you even pan further back, if, if this room of 400 students were so fully committed to the mission of God that as we look out on the nation and see 403 universities with 10,000 students or more, that we would say, man, we are committing ourselves to leveraging our life for the gospel. And we want to see churches in every single one of those university contexts that are for college students. Can you imagine the, the, the extraordinary impact that God would do through this room? What if we even look further and we think about the, the world, the nations, the globe, and of the millions and millions of college students in the world, what if there were people in this room, 400 students that said, we are so fully committed to the mission of God that I will give up comfort and things in this life to go and to leverage my life in a foreign context for the sake of the gospel. Could you imagine the extraordinary things that we would see God do through this room? Can you imagine the extraordinary movement of God that would start in Cedar Falls, Iowa? Could you imagine the extraordinary movement and impact that you would have all across our nation and all across the globe if everyone in this room just fully committed to the mission of God? Guys, this small group in Ephesus for two years fully devoted themselves to the mission of God. And in those two years, there wasn't a person in their region who hadn't heard the gospel. There were scores of people surrendering their life to Jesus. And there were so many people being influenced by Christ that there was entire industries afraid they were gonna go bankrupt. 12 people, two years. Guys, what would a room of 400 people fully committed to the mission of God be able to see him do in our context? Extraordinary things. But here's the reality. Uh, we have to know what fueled their commitment because it's like January 16th, which means that you've given up on your resolutions for about 15 days now, if you're anything like me. Uh, after reading the U.S. like Navy SEAL book, I think I did push-ups one day. <laughs> I don't think I've done them since January 1st. And that was like, you know, I only did like 50. So 
<laughs> it's more than five. That was last year's goal, five on January 1st. So guys, we all know that just pure commitment isn't gonna get us there. We need to know what's gonna sustain that commitment and what produces that commitment. What will fuel this sort of commitment to the mission of God? And I think there's a clue in the very last, center, or very last sentence of this letter of Ephesians. So I'm gonna make you flip back to Ephesians. Hopefully it's easier to find this time since you already found it once. Go to the very last sentence of Ephesians. I think this sentence will give us a clue of what fueled this impact, this level of impact in Ephesus. All right, here's the last sentence in the letter of Ephesus, uh, letter of Ephesians. Here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to that again. Grace be with all who have an undying love. Undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. What fuels Ephesus level impact? What fuels extraordinary impact in our communities? It's a personal passion for Jesus. It's an undying love for Jesus. Guys, for two years, this small group of believers sat around and listened to the sorts of things that we're gonna look at every week this semester. And they saw time and time again, as Paul was teaching them about Jesus, his glory and his beauty and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And as they were seeing what Jesus had done for us with more clarity, with more understanding, it was captivating to them. And they began to see the beauty and the perfection and the glory of Jesus in a way that they never had. And it was producing in them this undying love for Jesus that was fueling their impact. Guys, we can commit to the mission of God and make this resolution, but so many of us, like all of our other resolutions, will fall away if it's not fueled by an undying, passionate love for Jesus. So a couple years ago, it might've been more like three or four years ago, uh, back when we were in Ames, I was working for Saul Company. My boss was Saul. He invited like several of us staff members to come just hang out one summer night. So we're on his back porch, just hanging out. We'd already ate supper. We're just, you know, chilling. And he says, hey, you guys wanna play a game? And so we're all like, yeah, sure. And he's like, let's play Name That Song. So Saul Rexius loves pop music. I mean, that's basically the only genre he thinks exists. And so he just starts playing them. And so he pulls up the first song, hits play, and within two seconds, my wife, Natalie, goes, artist, song title. And we're like, whoa, all right, Natalie, we see you. <laughs> pulls up second song, play Natalie again, two seconds, boom, boom, artist, song title. And we're like, whoa, okay. Third song, again, Natalie, two seconds, artist, song title. And so we're like, okay, change of the rules. It is the nine of us against Natalie. And so Natalie had to give us like 10 seconds for us to think of it. And then she would just go, artist, song title. And my wife, it was like one of the greatest moments. I loved it. I was like, you are the coolest person I know. <laughs> Natalie has just this passion and love for pop music. Like she loves it. She listens to it every time she is like doing chores. Every time she's in the car, she just loves pop music. And she can go all the way back and just smoke a group of nine people and name that song because she just loves it. She has this passion. I, on the other hand, in high school, only listened to like Journey, ACDC, and Van Halen. And I was in my Astro green van, Chevy Astro. It was awesome, just blaring. I actually blew out my speakers to Journey one time. It was incredible. <laughs> 
But once Natalie and I started dating and now are married, you know, Natalie is just constantly playing pop music because she has a passion for it. And what began to happen over time, over the years that we've been together, is I have developed not only an appreciation, not only a, like a delight, but a love of pop music to the point that I like without even verifying the date, like knew that Taylor Swift's uh, Lover album came out on August 23rd and I could not wait for it to come out and was like listening to it the second it came out. Like, and Natalie didn't even tell me when it was released. I was just like, I cannot wait for Taylor Swift's Lover album to come out. For reputation, I just blare Endgame all the time, got caught multiple times by myself blaring Endgame because I love it. What happened? Natalie's passion and delight for something impacted me. And guys, this is true of so many things in our lives. What we are passionate about, we talk about. What we are passionate about, we share about. The things that captivate and animate us, we cannot stop talking about them. And guys, when you see Jesus for who he is, as the savior who came to rescue us from our sin so that we could have a relationship with him, that we were once condemned to eternal separation from God, but Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sin. Guys, it will captivate your heart in a way that nothing else in this world has. And it will animate you to move and leverage your life for gospel impact in a way that nothing, no commitment could. Guys, but here's what happens. I said that the third thing we'd do is look at this letter that the Ephesians get 30 years down the road. 30 years down the road, another Christian leader sends this church in Ephesus a letter. And it's actually not a great letter. Though this church had seen so much impact and though this church had this undying love for Jesus, in this letter 30 years down the road that they get, it says that they had abandoned their first love. This apostle John writes them a letter and says, hey, you've abandoned your love. And guys, you know what happened? They ceased to have gospel impact. They ceased to be effective and they lost their passion for Jesus. And what they became was this insider club that was really comfortable with each other and really good at defining who was in and who was out, but had no passion for Jesus and no love for people. Guys, it is entirely possible that there's a season in your life where you see God do extraordinary things It's entirely possible that there's a season in your life where you have a passion and get animated about the things of God and then for you to walk away and abandon your love for him. Because my greatest fear for you is that you would have an awesome time in college and then 30 years from now, get a letter that says you abandoned your love for Jesus. Don't let salt, don't let college be the pinnacle of your faith. We wanna be a launching pad that sends you from here to leverage your entire life for the sake of the gospel. And here's the only way that will happen. Is not to resolve to have just this crazy commitment to Jesus, but to first know beyond a shadow of a doubt the crazy commitment that he has to you. Guys, the only thing that will maintain and sustain your undying love for Jesus is to know the undying love he has for you that was demonstrated for you on the cross. Guys, we wanna do extraordinary things for God, but no matter what God does in our life, no matter what extraordinary things he does through us, they will all pale in the extraordinary thing he has accomplished for you. 
Guys, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came because of his great love for you, his undying commitment to you, so that we could be brought from death to life, so that we who had rejected relationship with God could be restored in relationship to him. And guys, when that reality, the truth of what Jesus has done for you to, to save you from your sinfulness, when that melts your heart, you'll be captivated by the beauty of Jesus in a way that you have never been captivated by something. And it will fuel your life being a life of high impact. Guys, how do we have high impact? It's through a personal passion for Jesus. When you see what Jesus has done, it will fuel your love for him and it will move you to do extraordinary things for him. Guys, that's my prayer for us as a ministry. It's my prayer for you, that we'd be people that would see God do incredible things here, but then would leave this place and leverage our entire lives for his sake. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, God, I'm, it excites me to look at a story like this to see the way that you work through a bunch of normal, not even a bunch, a little bit of normal people, 12 people. Um, to reach a city of 250,000 the way they did. Um, it, it fills me with courage because it means that there's a, a bunch of normal people in this room that can be used in an extraordinary way by you. Um, God, we love you. We wanna be people who are fully committed to your mission. God, that as we understand and see with more clarity the, the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, that it would move us to a place of love and adoration for you and that, that through that passion for your son would move us to be used in incredible ways for your kingdom. God, we love you. Amen.